chapter 7 as we continue our study through the book of Jeremiah. And the title this evening is Trusting in Lying Words. Trusting in Lying Words. We've seen already in chapters 2 through 6 the prophecies that Jeremiah gave during the first five years of his ministry. And as a young man, around 20 years old, he gave them those serious predictions condemning his people and pronouncing judgment on them. And now here in chapter 7, uh, verses, uh, chapter 7 through chapter 10, these prophecies were given after the law of the Lord had been discovered in the temple during the time of cleansing that was ordered by the young king Josiah. And Josiah was really concerned about his people. He, was, he showed that he had a personal relationship with God as a young man. And he and Jeremiah were about the same age and both were on fire for God. And they were probably good friends. Hilkiah the priest, who was Jeremiah's father, is the one who found the law of the Lord in the temple. Again, the temple was cleaned out. It was repaired. It was back in use. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And three times a year, the Jewish men were required to go to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, according to Deuteronomy 16, 16. And this may have been one of those occasions here. So the temple, the temple was probably crowded with masses of people. But there weren't many true worshipers there. Jeremiah stood at one of the gates that led into the temple courts, and he gives a prophecy to his people as they came in. And he read God's charges against the people of Judah, and this is how he opens, you know, in chapter 7. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. And Jeremiah said, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So God tells Jeremiah, I want you to stand at the gate of my house and I want you to preach this message. And that message is, listen, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship God. God wants to say this to you. And now that the temple has been prepared and the book of the law, which was God's word, has been found, the people are now returning to the temple in great numbers. Coming back to the temple is the popular thing to do. And they're talking about returning to God. And Jeremiah hears the people talking and he gives the following message. Look at verse 3. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. It's pretty clear that even though they were going to the temple, and they were were returning to temple worship, there was no real change in their lives. They're still living like they did when they were worshiping idols. It was only an outward revival at this time, a superficial, superficial revival. But the time would come when it was more real. But right now, it's only a superficial movement. And so Jeremiah first pleads with the people here. Notice in verse 3, he said, amend their ways. Change your ways. He's asking them to be sincere. He's asking them to be faithful. He's asking them to be genuine and wholehearted in their repentance. 
And then he outlines what, what this would involve in a, practicable, a practical way, a way for everyday living. And now we'll see the real attitude of the people, which was the thing that Jeremiah was really concerned about. Look at verse 4. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. He tells the people, hey, don't trust in the lying words of the false prophets who insist that God will protect Jerusalem because his temple is there. You know, and saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So you can imagine how the people felt about all of this. You know, they were coming and they were saying, wow, check out the temple now that it's been fixed up and, and restored and it's and back to service. They sure did a good job of fixing it up. It feels good to get back to the temple. You know, it's just like old times. The reality was there was an enthusiasm about the temple, but there was no genuine turning to God. And this is what Jeremiah saw. The temple was more like a good luck charm. You know, I go, in, I go to church and, oh, it just feels so good to be here. And, and because I'm going to church, I'm going to be okay. God's going to take care of me. God's going to, he's going to protect me. But Jeremiah says, hey, don't trust in these lying words that you're saying, that the false prophets told you. And if you read 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35, it will help you to understand what's going on at this particular time in history. And what happened was really wonderful. When the book of the law was found in the temple, Hilkiah gave it to Shaphan. Shaphan was King Josiah's scribe. And he read the book of the law to King Josiah. And so King Josiah got all the elders of Judah together and of, of Judah and Jerusalem together, and they read the law to the people. And they made a covenant with God to walk before him. And then they celebrated a Passover in Jerusalem. Listen to what it says in 2 Chronicles 35, verses 18 and 19. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites. All Judah and Israel who were present and, in, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. You see, they reinstituted the services in the temple after the, after the, the scriptures were read to them. You know, with all of the sacrifice and all of the feasts. That was great. That was wonderful. So what was the problem? The problem was that they weren't changing their ways. They weren't changing the way that they were living. They were living just like they had been living before. Now, he's not talking about obeying the Ten Commandments here. But to what the Lord gave them after the Ten Commandments. And he gave them instructions in Exodus chapters uh, 21 through 23. He gave them a, a, a list of instructions to follow in, in, in their everyday life. Things that dealt with everyday life in Israel and their relationships to one another. He gave them a, a, a bunch of instruction. Laws about servants and capital crimes and, and child and parents kidnapping, injuries, slaves, uh, pregnant women who got injured, uh, animals that were injured, you know, property damage. All these things and many, many, many more are, 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 you know, listed there in chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus. 
Now listen to verses 5 through 7. For if you thoroughly, and notice, thoroughly, not partially, not a little bit, for if you thoroughly amend or change your ways and your doings, and if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after God's to your hurt. He says, and I go to verse 7, then I, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. He says, you know, if you thoroughly, thoroughly change your ways, and if you stop your evil thoughts and your evil deeds, and you start treating each other with justice and love, and you stop taking advantage of foreigners and orphans and widows, and if you stop your murdering, and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols, God says, I'll be merciful to you. Now, his tone here is calm and it's reassuring. If they acted accordingly to what God had instructed them to do, they would stay in the land and they'd live in peace. Jeremiah assures the people that God's thoughts towards them are good. But, as Jeremiah moves further into his message, his tone changes as he reminds the nation about their sins. Look at verses 8 and 10. He says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, house which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Even though the people were talking about how wonderful the temple was after it was cleansed and fixed up, they were still worshiping Baal. Even after scriptures had been read to them. You see, their thinking was that since the temple was repaired and they were at least making some kind of acknowledgement to God on the Sabbath day that he would protect them. But Jeremiah is telling them, don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. He says, it's a lie. He says in verses 8 through 10, do you really think you can steal and murder and commit adultery and lie and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours? And then you can come here in the temple and stand before me and say we are safe because the temple's here and then only to go back to do all of those evil things again? Now, it's true that when people truly turn to God, he will protect them. But they were, they, were, they were resting on a fact that didn't apply to them. I mean, they had taken up quite an offering for the rebuilding of the temple. And people who had given generously felt that this was all they needed to do to get God's blessings. You know, a lot of times we think, well, you know, if I do this, you know, I, I, I put a few dollars in the offering plate and, and you know, I, I just, you know, I'm going to be Okay. I'm going to get God's blessings. Well, here's the problem. Now, in a sense, it was a new church building. They cleansed, they cleaned it up. They, they, they you know, uh, refurbished it and they, they reinstituted the ceremonies and the sacrifices. But it was the same sinful people in the church. You see, going to church doesn't change our heart. It's coming to Christ. The same people should have been made new, but they weren't. 
It was the same old people in a new church. Don't make the mistake that the building makes the people. That the buildings or growth in numbers means there's spiritual growth and development. This is the point that Jeremiah is making here. And then he goes on to say something else. Notice in verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. He says, you yourselves have to admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves. He says, surely, you should know I see all the evil that's going on here. And then after breaking the law of God, they had the nerve to go into the temple and say, hey, we're, we're delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations that he mentioned in verses 9 and 10. Jesus referred to this verse after he cleansed the temple in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. A den of robbers is the place where the thieves would go to after they committed their crimes. So Jeremiah was saying that the Jews were using the temple ceremonies to cover up their sins. See, instead of being made holy in the temple, the, temple, the people were making the temple unholy. They were also laboring under the false impression that because the temple was the dwelling place of God and God would never let it be desecrated or damaged in any way, they were safe. They thought they could say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like those were magic words. Some chant that they could say and, and they would be protected. From any kind of disaster. Jeremiah said, hey man, you're trusting in lying words. Verse 12. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. He says, hey guys, go to Shiloh. That's where the first temple was. Go to Shiloh, where I once put the temple that carried my name. And see what I did there because of all the wickedness of my people, speaking of the Israelites. Jeremiah here gives the people a history lesson. He reminds them of the first temple, uh, the first tabernacle at Shiloh. Shiloh had been a place of worship during the time of the judges. But when the people made religious ob a religious object or relic of the ark, the village had been destroyed. They were placing their, 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 their faith and their trust in a thing rather than the living God. Verse 13. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, notice, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. The Lord says, look, while you were doing all of these wicked things, I spoke to you about this more than once. But you wouldn't listen. He said, I called out to you, but you refused to answer. Verse 14. Therefore, as a result of what he just said, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. He says, just as I destroyed Shiloh, I will destroy this place. 
just, he, his, he says, this temple that you trust in for your help, this place that I gave to you and your ancestors, I'll, I'll wipe it out. And notice, notice how God doesn't, doesn't take interest in buildings or temples. Now, I don't mean he's not interested in how the building looks. It, it, it's not something that, that, that he holds near and dear in that sense, like the people do. These walls are nothing but cement and plaster and wood and stuff. He says, when you guys are not here, that's all it is. Right now, it's a church because you're here. You're the church. And that's the thing that we need to remember. The only temple that God takes interest in interest is your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God. This is, this, this is just a structure. And with this prediction in verse 14, Jeremiah touched a nerve in the religious life of the people. Oh, they, they resented what Jeremiah was saying. They didn't like what Jeremiah was saying. They reacted with resentment and anger, according to verse 26, because you see, he exposed their self-deceit. He, he exposed their moral character. He was showing what they were really like. To satisfy their own depraved desires, the people were trying to make God into their own image. And they, the people, had reduced his moral teachings to their superstitious imaginations. Now, Paul said this is a natural thing to do because of man's fallen nature. We try to bring God down to our level. Verse 15. And I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. God said, you're not as safe as you think you are. And he's referring to the exile of the northern kingdom, which had already taken place in 721 B.C. And also, it was a clear prediction of the exile of Judah. Self-deception always ends in heartbreak, misery, and disappointment. Verses 16 through 20. Notice now, here Jeremiah is forbidden to pray. Verses 16 through 20. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or a prayer for them, nor make the intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire. And the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may uh, provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place. On man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground. And it will burn and it will not be quenched. So Jeremiah begins to pray for his people, for his nation. But God tells Jeremiah, hey, stop. He says, Jeremiah, you don't need to pray for these people until they turn to me. God is saying here, it's no useful. It's no longer useful to pray for the people. Because the nation had gone too far away from God. And unless they turn back to God, there's no hope for them. Our security is the Lord, nothing else. God says it's no longer useful to pray for the people. And the point is, it, it, 
It's possible to rebel against God until there's no hope for you. There is a cutoff point. And the Bible teaches us that there are times when we don't need to pray for people to be blessed, but we need to pray that God's will will be done. That's not always comfortable. That's scary. Especially when it comes close to home. Lord, do whatever you need to do to my children to bring them to the cross. That's scary. We like, we like, Lord, bless them. Bless them and bring them good tidings. And Well, if they're walking with the Lord, yes. But Lord, we want to see them in heaven. Lord, do whatever needs to be done that they will come to the cross of Jesus Christ. We often pray for people, for God to bless people, when we should be praying that those people will be saved. And for God to do whatever it takes to bring them to the cross. And this is what God is saying to Jeremiah here. And you know, there are times when I've gotten, you know, prayer requests from, from, from people who, <clears throat> who have relatives or children or, or friends that have gotten themselves in trouble with the law. And they'll say, Pastor, you know, pray that, that, pray that the tri- charges are dropped. Pray that they get a good lawyer. Pray that the, they won't go to jail. Pray that, you know, you know, and God's at work. God's at work in people's lives in different ways. God may be moving in this person's life, and God is using this situation to break them and to teach them humility to turn to him. We don't know what God's will is for somebody. Paul said in Romans 8, 26 and 27, for example, he says, Paul said, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for believers in harmony with God's own will. God said to Jeremiah, don't stand there in the temple praying that these people won't go into captivity. Because it's not my will. Pray that they'll turn back to me, Jeremiah. You're giving them my message, and that's the important thing to do. I like what J. Vernon McGee says, and he can only see it in his way. He said, God gets right down to the heart of the issue. God isn't as interested in your ritual on Sunday as he is in your behavior on Monday. The place to judge where a Christian is genuine or not isn't to watch him in church on Sunday, but to see him at work on Monday. Outside the building. God was not through charging the people. Nor was the revelation over yet. With, you know, in, a, in verses 17 through 18. Look what he says. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. And the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. He says, don't you see what they're doing all throughout the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? No wonder I'm so angry. He says, watch how the children gather the wood that they give to the father who makes the fire who builds the sacrificial fires so the women who need dough can make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. And then they pour out liquid offerings to their other, to their, to, uh, their other idol gods. The, 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 uh, the pouring out offering 
is a picture of pouring out your total everything for God. And here they were pouring out liquid offerings to their other idol gods, saying they were just pouring out their lives to these other gods. The people had become so totally shameless in their sin that they were offering sacrifices to other gods publicly, openly in the streets. The queen of heaven uh, apparently refers to Ishtar, the goddess of a Babylonian fertility cult that had been introduced to Judah. The queen of heaven is mentioned to show how deep the people had fallen into their sin. You know, they had, the point they had reached marks the beginning of the end for the nation. Verse 19, do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? The Lord says, am I, am I the one that they're hurting? Most of all, he says, they hurt themselves to their own shame. Verse 20, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. In other words, he says in verse 20, this kind of perverseness cannot go unpunished. And then in verses 21 through 29, God speaks about obedience. Obedience being better than sacrifice. And in these verses, Jeremiah speaks against the wrong use of a religious ritual. And he makes it very clear that religious ceremony without holiness to match, it, it doesn't mean anything. In other words, if sacrifices didn't result in strengthening their, their morality in the nation, they were worse, those things, those sacrifices were worse than nothing because they're, they're believing in something that isn't true. And this is, this is true with all, again, ritualism in religion. As Paul said, it's a form of godliness, but not denying the power of it. There's no change in the life. Unless formal religious ceremonies, any kind of ceremony, strengthens morality and holy living, all the work that's done behind it is for nothing. It's a waste of time. If there's no effect in my life, if it doesn't drastically change my life, it's all for naught. Verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. Now, Jeremiah uses a, a little sarcasm here. He says, why don't you take all of your burnt offerings and all of your other sacrifices and eat them yourselves? Don't offer them to me. They're meaningless. In other words, God says, hey, I don't want them. You might as well put, put, might as well put all your burnt offerings with your peace offering and just eat them together. Just have, you know, under the circumstances, he says, your sacrifices have no religious effectiveness. It's just a bunch of meaningless meat. Meaningless sacrifices. Verse 22. For did I not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices? In other words, he says, God's main commandment didn't deal with burnt offerings or sacrifices when he brought them you know, out of the land of Egypt. He said, I didn't want those things. I didn't ask for those things. He says, this is what I wanted. In verse 23, 
But this is what I commanded them, saying, notice, obey my voice. I didn't ask for the sacrifices. I didn't ask them for the offerings. This is what I wanted. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. God made it clear to them again that what he wants is their obedience. I mean, going to the temple, that was great. But going to church is not a substitute for obedience. It's been said that some people go to church to eye the clothes and others go to close their eyes. It might be true in some cases. Their purpose here isn't really to worship God. Their lives haven't been changed. They still gossip. They still destroy other Christians behind their back. They still live their lives out in the world just as Jeremiah's people were going to the altar of Baal and living without a testimony for the Lord. You know, when we go to church, we're giving off a certain certain testimony. But it's the testimony people see of you that really counts. They may see us come into a church and say, oh, they're religious people. But it's what they see of us on the outside. In our daily practical living that really counts. Because it's very real and it's very personal. The sacrificial system was instituted for the purpose of encouraging moral obedience and making God a real factor in our life. But instead of obeying God's moral requirements, the people started to walk according to the dictates of their own hearts, according to their stubbornness, and they became more wicked and they became more sinful because they failed to learn from the sacrificial system. And because they failed to learn from the sacrificial system, God introduced the office of prophecy. That is, the prophets that that, that came, they were commissioned to help the people in fulfilling the demands of the law that had been given to them at Sinai. So the people now had twice the help. They had the object lessons in holy living that were given by the sacrificial system, and then they had the preaching of the prophets. God was very concerned about the people. So concerned, look at verse what 25 says. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, notice, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising up early and sending them. You know, he says, I was so concerned about you. That, man, I sent prophets to you, getting up early every day and coming out to you and preaching the word. But instead of listening to the service and the prophets that God sent them, notice what they did in verse 26. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Now God sees that when Jeremiah speaks to them, they're not going to listen or answer. So Jeremiah is told to pass this verdict. Look at verse 28. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of their God, nor receive correction. They were were even more stubborn. This being the case, the only thing they could do was expect judgment and destruction. Verse 29. 
Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now, when he says cut off your hair and cast it away, he's not talking about a particular woman. Jeremiah is talking here about the daughter of Zion. That was, again, a, a name for Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. She was the capital city of Jerusalem. All right, but it's personified as a woman, as the mother of all people. So cutting the hair is an act of mourning. It was a sign of mourning to cut off the hair. The Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath, so that's a good reason to mourn. And then Jeremiah gave several reasons why mourning would be the thing for Jerusalem to do. Look at verse 30. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. Reason number one why they should mourn. Judah had become so shameless and so disrespectful that she had set up these abominations, these idols in God's house. And they polluted God's house. The second reason for mourning, look at verse 31. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. They had built shrines to the god Molech in the valley of the son of Hinnom. They had human sacrifices there, something that God hated so much that he said, I didn't command that. That never entered my heart. Though the place was named Tophet, it would now be called, it said, the Valley of Slaughter. Notice verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. Because so many people would die there in the coming destruction of Jerusalem. It would be called the Valley of Slaughter. The place where they had practiced such gross wickedness would become their graves. And that's the foolishness of sin. You'll never get away with it. Verse 33, we see the third reason for mourning. Verse 33, the corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. The third reason is, is the reason to mourn was the prediction of that day of judgment of the slaughter that it would be so great that many bodies would be buried there, but they would become bur- uh, meat for the birds and the beasts and nothing would scare them away. And there was nothing more shameful for a Hebrew to suffer than to have their body lay exposed to the elements and, and not have a proper burial. Now, verse 34, we see the fourth reason for mourning. Verse 34, Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Jeremiah said the time was soon coming when the happy singing and the laughter in the streets of Jerusalem and the joyful voices of the bridegroom and the bride, you would no longer hear those things in the towns of Judah. Because of the judgment. So in closing, the land would be totally desolate. There would just be the stillness and the quietness of death. Topheth is an Aramaic word meaning fireplace. It sounds a lot like the word meaning shameful thing. Topheth was the place in the valley of the son of Hinnom 
where the people sacrificed their children to idols by throwing them into the fire. King Josiah had defiled Topheth and turned it into a garbage dump. But after he died, after King Josiah died, that, those gruesome pagan rituals, they were brought back. The Greek word kahana, meaning hell, comes from the Hebrew word, Hebrew word gehinnom, the valley of Hinnom. Hell is a garbage dump. And it's the place where all of those who reject Jesus Christ will suffer forever with the devil and his angels. Never meant to be a place for man. And God provided a way where nobody had to go to hell. But for those who rejected the loving offer of God, his wonderful salvation, they make the choice. They bring judgment upon themselves. They bring the, the sentence of death, eternal death upon themselves for rejecting the loving cross of Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercies. And Father, we thank you for the wonderful offering that you've made to us, God, by way of the cross. We were condemned to hell from the beginning, from the fall. And Jesus had to make a way. The Father had to send his son in order that we didn't go to hell. It was, God's never in, God's, it was never God's intention. But man chose to disobey God. And from that, that one disobedience, that disobedience fell upon all man. That fallen nature. And we had to have a new nature. And we only can receive that new nature through Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But God's Spirit has spoken to you. If you're watching this evening at home. And God's Spirit has spoken to you. And you realize. I need Jesus Christ. I need to be born again, born anew. I want to say this prayer out loud, this sinner, this sinner's prayer, prayer of repentance. I want to lead you in this prayer. I will say it out loud, loud, and then you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you I am a sinner. Please cleanse me and wash me. And make me brand new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me now. All the days of my life to walk with you. And thank you Jesus for dying for me. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer. Find yourself a, a Bible teaching church. If you close to the church here come on and, and, and you know and, and start learning about the, sa the, the, the Savior that, that died for you and, and, and saved you if you need a Bible let us know myself Pastor Tony one of the ushers and we're more, glad to, more than glad to give you one so prayerfully you, you, you if you're here and, and, uh, or you're watching you, you um, made that invitation to the Lord Okay, Sunday morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, and it's the conduct.
and institution of the Lord's Supper. Again, how we are to partake of communion and and how we're to not come in an unworthy, unworthy manner. God bless you guys.